Hello, hello. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino, and we have such an amazingly sunshiny, lovely, extraordinary guest today who I am so excited that I got connected with, and I'm really, really excited for you to hear her speak. Her name is Wendy Adamson. And she is an author, activist, speaker, and mother. Wendy believes that only by telling our personal stories can we heal the shame and eliminate the stigma associated with mental illness and addiction. With over 20 years of experience in the field of addiction and mental health, Wendy is a seasoned professional who not only possesses a comprehensive understanding of the recovery process, but psychiatric issues as well. And we'll talk in the interview about her book called Motherload, And I was just looking it up on Amazon and I ordered it. It just came in the mail. I'm super excited to read it. And when I was looking at the reviews, she's got all five star reviews except for one. And I don't know what was wrong with that person. They said amazing things about her, but they didn't give five stars. I don't know what's up with that. But all of these reviews of the book are amazing. So I really, really can't wait to read it. And I think once you listen to Wendy's story, you're going to be really interested in picking up the book yourself. So please enjoy my interview with Wendy Adamson. Wendy, we did it. We did it. We're here. How are you, Sarah? (laughs) I'm good. It feels like summer finally in Chicago. So I'm happy about that. That's great. Well, it's June gloom here in Los Angeles. Right? (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like it's taken forever for us to get here after Beck introduced us. And so I apologize for that. But literally, there's been construction next door to my house. And then our internet went out for a week and a half. And clearly, it was meant for us to do this today. Well, this is perfect. This is actually perfect. Yay. Yay. So I know almost nothing about you except from what I've seen on Instagram. So I love your vibe. That's all I care about. Truly, when I'm looking for guests is that I love your vibe and we have things in common. So would you tell me and the listeners who you are and what you do? Well, what I do? Well, I've got 25 years sober. Congratulations. Thank you. I love your vibe and your laugh as well. So. Best friends. Yay. <laughs> so I've been sober 25 years. And, you know, when I first got sober, I obviously had a lot of wreckage. Mm-hmm. So what I, you know, initially did was a lot of work on myself, which mm-hmm. came from therapy, doing healing work and kind of confronting my past. So what I do and have been doing is I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. Mm-hmm. I'm a writer. I just published a book called Mother Load. And I do writing groups mm. in outpatient treatments because I find writing to be a very therapeutic vehicle for people to get in touch with things that are going on. And it kind of just reveals the prompts I use. Parts of them reveal themselves yes. to themselves mm-hmm. through the writing. So I do that. And I also work for an adolescent treatment center called Polaris. Mm. We deal with adolescents and there's a lot of them dealing with issues today, self-harm and trauma. So I work there and I love the work we do there. Awesome. So you and I do the same thing, basically, except I use other forms of entertainment sometimes like music. Music is great. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much I'm imagining to unpack. 
I'd love to hear about Motherload because I know that you're really trying to put that out into the world right now. So I'd love for you to tell listeners a little bit about that and and also too, probably not just about the book itself, but the journey to writing the book. You know, people keep telling me I'm supposed to write a book and I imagine they probably said that to you too, right? Like those right. of us who have something inside us that's supposed to be birthed, we find out last really. <laughs> yeah. So I want to hear kind of the whole story of how it came to be. So- when I got sober, I started a meditation practice and mm, yes, I started to get still. And when I could be still enough to hear something deeper coming from inside me instead mm. of just the constant critic or the committee, if you will, I knew that I was supposed to write a book and right. I wasn't a writer. Oh, wow. You weren't before then. No, I wow. wasn't. A writer. But I had a clear realization without any reasoning of my mind that I was supposed to do it. So I knew that's what I was supposed to do. But it took me another 10 years to commit myself to taking writing workshops, finding a safe space, mm. which is important when working in counseling with addicts and alcoholics or people with mental health. You want to provide a safe space. Absolutely. So I found a safe space in a writing group and mm. learned how to develop my voice. What I discovered is I still had a lot of shame. Mm, preach. Yeah. A lot of <laughs> shame, girl. Let mm -hmm. me tell you. Yes. Tell me. Oh, and <laughs> It was hard because I have one of those gnarly stories. I ended yeah. up in the county jail for assault with a deadly weapon. There's no other way to say it other than I shot my husband's mistress in the arm in a wow. meth-induced psychotic break. Wow. So the interesting thing is I was 38 years old and it was the same age as my mother was at 38, when she had a psychotic break. Wow. And she killed herself. <gasps> wow. So, you know, once you lose your mind, how do you get it back? Wow. You know, my mother doesn't get the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what I have since discovered and learned is the transgenerational trauma Oof, that is yes. passed down through the ancestry. You know, like Carl mm -hmm. Young says, until you make the unconscious conscious, yes. it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Mm -hmm. And it was directing my life. I was unconscious. Mm -hmm. My unforgiveness and my resentments towards her was directing my life until I became her. Yes. The exact place I didn't want to end up. Right. So, okay. So the story is gnarly and the theme of it is how not having a mother created a gap, a hole in me and that mm -hmm. directed my life. And by becoming a mother, I mean, a sober, present, loving mother and learning how to parent, I found the mother that I always wanted that was inside of me. Wow. How old were you when your mom died by suicide? Seven. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is quite a, I'll use your term, gnarly, gnarly story. And I think that the mother-daughter relationship already is the most difficult relationship that we have as humans. Yeah. And then to add this all on top of it, she was also uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol? No, she was paranoid schizophrenic. Ah, okay. Okay. So growing up, the first seven years, you know, when the wow. architecture of my brain was developing, I was mm -hmm. on hyper vigilant mode, you know, like fight, flight, or oh, freeze. Yeah. 
because she was constantly having psychotic breaks. And then she'd go off to the hospital, the mental hospital, get shock treatment, put on meds and stabilize, and then come back home and be a mother for a while Mm -hmm. until she had another psychotic break. So there was always this questioning, Mm, like, who is she? Who's going to be home when I get there? My dad was drinking to deal with his own disappointment. He was Mm -hmm. an alcoholic. So needless to say, it was an unstable environment growing up. Mm-hmm. I always tell my clients and patients that I come across that I truly, truly believe that people who suffer from addiction are called to a higher purpose because yeah. if you survived and you made it through that, you have something to fucking give to the world. So don't squander it is what I always tell them, you know, like just to try to inspire. There's a fucking reason that you were able to make it through because that story, you would assume that you would have ended up on the street or any number of things, but not, you know, an author and someone actually giving back to the community and doing all this great work. That's incredible. Yes, I think that's part of the reason I wanted to write the book. I wasn't looking forward to exposing my secrets. <laughs> right. I wasn't like going, oh, just let me go tell everybody how I shot right. the other woman. <laughs> I, there was That's like, my favorite part. <laughs> oh, God. But there was something deeper in me that mm-hmm. wanted to talk to the women that are stuck yeah. or, or the kids that are stuck and are blaming, you know, because yes. the only language I spoke was victimese mm-hmm. when I first got sober. I was blaming my mother. I was blaming my father. Inevitably, I blamed my ex-husband for mm-hmm. my circumstances. But as long as I blamed them, I was giving away my power. Absolutely. Like, what part did I have to play in all of the choices I had made? And the first choice that was significant for me was, well, first I have to get sober in order to heal these transgenerational trauma and, mm-hmm. and my mother's trauma, I would have to stay present for it. Because yeah. my tendency was to even early in sobriety was to run, distract mm-hmm. myself, find something else to do or act out in some way. Mm-hmm. It took time, but inevitably I learned to stay present mm-hmm. for it. And I mean, I had more than one dark nights of the soul. Yeah. You know, where I revisited the footprint a personal trauma. And mm-hmm. I felt that grief that I never experienced at seven when mm-hmm. I lost my mother. So that was a crushing pain to feel that completely. Yeah. But inevitably, I would learn to forgive her for what I considered abandoning me. Yeah. And the payoff to that was when I let her off the hook, I let me off the hook for the mistakes I had made as a mother. Can I ask about that? Because one of the things I've been leaning into, my mother's also passed away. Both my parents have passed away and I struggle with forgiveness. And what I'm what I'm coming to is that forgiveness is not a one time process like, oh, okay, I've forgiven and that's done and I don't have to worry about it anymore. I feel like there's layers of forgiveness. Like I've forgiven her for certain components of our relationship, but there are others that I'm still holding on to. And like you said, the judgment of others is ultimately the judgment of ourselves, too. Right. And that's something that I aspire to be able to forgive my parents. But it's so difficult. What practices did you put into play to work on that forgiveness? Again, I said, you know, meditation. Mm -hmm. I went to a meditation center and I was just open enough Mm -hmm. in my sobriety to try something new. 
Mm-hmm. And I went there and I struggled with judgment. I was judging these people. Mm-hmm. Oh, they look so new agey. Oh, look, <laughs> you know, woo woo. You know yep, what? Yep. We're going to chant. What are you talking about? I just, right. I just got out of jail, you know? Right. And fuck you guys. <laughs> right? Chant this with my middle chant finger. <laughs> You know, it was like so oh. weird that I was open enough to try this. So it was yeah. my sister gifted it to me, a three-day intensive. Oh, wow. I chanted, I meditated, I sat, and I was still. Mm. When you sit still, a lot of times stuff will come up from the mm-hmm. past. You're reaching beyond your wounds and into this well. Yeah. And I had an overwhelming experience of flooding of compassion for my mother. It was almost like I had slipped into her skin, if you will. Wow. I had slipped into her skin and I felt for her. Mm. And it was like something I couldn't have accessed yeah. in therapy, something I couldn't mm-hmm. access any other place, but in this stillness that yeah. it was phenomenal. Yeah. And that sold me on meditation, you know, that experience. But yes, I believe that I got huge relief from that. But just because I felt like I forgave her, there were still ways I was operating in the world that was based on my childhood, based on living with a mother that felt like you had a sleeper cell in the house, Mm. a terrorist that was Mm going to go off at any moment. My way of responding to situations had to be healed. Mm -hmm. And the memory that's stored in the body, in the cellular level. That's what I was going to say. The the experience of compassion that you had, that was like soul level work, yeah. which I think is is even deeper than the soma, right? You know, I experienced this desire to have forgiveness for my mother completely. And my clients will come to me saying like, oh, how do I get rid of this? And as much as we want therapy to be an exact science, it's just not. No. And we can't predict when things are going to get to that deep level that they can be released. So it's just beautiful that you did get to have that experience. And that was that was really early in your recovery? Really early. Wow. It was in the first five years, you wow. know. And I mean, I've come to believe that my individual suffering is a reflection of the collective consciousness. That, a you know, fucking man, sister. Right? Yes. I mean, what we're seeing played out in consciousness globally Mm -hmm. or within our country, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like the premise of healing myself and committing to making a difference and impacting the world around me. I may not be able to change politics or the government other Mm -hmm. than voting, but I can change my environment and be present for my, I have two boys Mm -hmm. and I have grandkids. And so My 25 years of sobriety, it became a priority to heal that wound and stay present. You know, like I said earlier, when I started experiencing the dark night of soul, and it happened again at 15 years sober, where I was hit with so much self-hatred that I go, oh my God, I'm the director of an outpatient program, a prestigious drug program, and I'm surrounded by therapists. I've done so much work on myself. And I got sick. And when I got sick, Mm. it triggered the cellular memory. For some reason, I felt like something was attacking my body. So I was leveled at that time, once again, by the pain of my mother, not of losing my mother, but just so much self-hatred. So I started seeing a, a healer at that time that is really gifted. And she helped me 
over many sessions kind of unraveled that, if you will. And she is a very gifted healer. And so I needed somebody to help guide me through it. Yeah. My therapist is, she also practices shamanism and she knows a lot about astrology. The work that I've gotten to do with her is so different than I've been in therapy, you know, since I was 17 and I'm 40 now. So it's been a minute and it's so different than any therapeutic experience I've ever had, because again, it gets at that healer aspect of a therapist or anyone who's practicing energy medicine in, in that way and has that gift it's such a different experience. It's so awesome that you found someone. It is. It's really different because talking about it, I mm -hmm, mean, mm -hmm. did not seem to access that part of the brain. You know, I mean, they right. know they've done studies in trauma now oh, yeah. where it's stored and, and how it's stored. And also what's interesting when I listened to this world-renowned psychiatrist on trauma recently talk about how trauma kills creativity and shuts down the voice. Mm -hmm. So part of my writing this book was about finding my voice. Mm -hmm. It was about finding my creativity, which was killed. But it was also, this is really significant, is that my father always told me, don't let the nuns know. Don't let anybody, don't mm -hmm. talk about your mother, you know, because it was very much about the persona and yes. keeping us an image mm -hmm. to present to the world. And he didn't want anybody to know what was going on behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. And so when I was coming out with this secret, it was almost like the shame started coming up again. Oh, my mm -hmm. goodness. There it is. The shame of like, I'm going to expose myself. I'm going to stand mm -hmm. naked in front of anybody that wants to read this book, right. I can no longer control what people know about me. It's going to be out there. Mm -hmm. But as a result of walking through that and putting it out there anyway, you know, it's yeah. like Brene Brown speaks about in her documentary on Netflix mm -hmm. is that what are you going to choose, comfort or courage? Yep. And it came to a point where I had no choice but to choose courage and step into the arena. You did have a choice, though. That's the thing that I want to, yeah, I want to applaud you for that. And I, I want to make that really clear to people. It is a choice because we all feel the fear of, right. you know, whatever vulnerability we decide to go through with. And obviously yours was quite a, an intense level of vulnerability. And one of the things that I'm really interested in trying to pick apart, and I'm, I'm actually working on trying to get a research study going about denial and the difference between the people who choose to step in and the people who don't. And obviously there's something to do with resilience. Obviously there's something to do with like, what I'm hearing from you is this internal fire, this internal movement that when you say like, I didn't have a choice but to, I feel that that's from an internal place, right? There is something moving you to do this, right? Right. Yeah. So there is something that same realization I had in meditation at the beginning that I was supposed to write came from a very deep place in me. It's yeah. like, the place of purpose, the place of like, this is what you're here to do. Yes. Okay. Yes. And so it's like, that's what drives a healer. Yes. You know that the wounds in you or the wounds in me are the very thing that can reach the wounds in somebody else. 100%. And so I had this amazing experience when I first got sober, when I went to juvenile hall and I talked to girls that were locked up in juvenile hall. 
Now, that would be a great thing. But what was incredible is it was I had been in that juvenile hall as a girl. Mm. I had abandoned myself as, you know, I don't know, as a young girl, I disassociated. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to those girls in juvenile hall, it was like reaching through a portal to me, the lost girl I had been. But also I got to see how all of my experience, everything I went through, if I'm not hiding it in a bag, like Mm -hmm. locked off from everybody, you know, not sharing it because I'm too ashamed. I'm too scared. I don't want to be judged. All of my story, it's like that I'm staying small. And I feel like if I can share it with others, then there's a purpose. Then I might be able to inspire others and, you know, show them there's a way out. Mm -hmm. If I can do it, you can do it. Believe me, when I was in juvenile hall or jail, I did not see examples of women that had come out the other side. I have since seen women that have come out the other side, but not when I was locked up. Mm -hmm. It feels to me like when you talk about almost seeing your younger self, like that's the, that's the transgenerational healing. And there's almost like a time machine quality to it of being able to contact that energy of that little girl who didn't really have any tools, didn't know any better, was just trying to survive in the world. And I try to tell my clients that there is a mutual healing happening, even though I'm spending my time helping you. But there is, again, back to this collective consciousness, right? There's a part of me and you and vice versa. And so we've got this cycle of healing for all of us. Oh, I believe that. I I so believe that. I mean, that we're connected, that all of this, it's all connected. And if I can get out of my myopic kind of point of view and see what I can bring to humanity. I mean, it's like the connection of, of trauma that was passed down. I started to see as me living my mother's life because I didn't mention that when I was a teenager, I cut my wrist and I ended Mm -hmm. up in the same mental hospital as her, Mm -hmm. you know? And then, like I said, I was 38 when I had that psychotic break. Mm -hmm. And so then my older son, who was struggling with addiction later on, when I got sober, he started repeating the same mistakes as I was. He got arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. Oh, wow. And then he actually went to a judge I had been in front of before. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it's like wow. I'm reliving my life mm-hmm. through my my children. Yeah. So how do you stop the trajectory of alcoholism, mental illness, all of that to one of healing and recovery? Mm-hmm. Just the way you did. You say it's time to stop this bullshit. Yeah, no more. Is your son in recovery now? He's doing great. I mean, he doesn't Mm -hmm. go to meetings or anything, but Mm -hmm. he's doing great. And it's interesting that he has kids. And the way I see him healing is by being a parent. He is so present for his boys. He's got two boys and two girls, but he takes his boys to all of their basketball Mm -hmm. games, all, all of their practices. And there is definitely a healing going on just Mm -hmm. in him staying present. Absolutely. My younger son started a nonprofit called Have a Soul, S-O-L-E, that gives out quality tennis shoes to the homeless and at-risk youth. And I do a lot of work for them. I do marketing and development. 
But what is satisfying is when I got out of jail, I had nowhere to go. And so my youngest son and I went to live at the sheltered transitional women and children's place Mm. that I go more into in the book. But when I was there, I was on welfare, like 25 years I was on Mm -hmm. ago. I was on welfare. I couldn't afford to buy him a pair of shoes. And a woman was kind enough to buy my son two pairs of shoes. Mm. Well, he never forgot that. Right. He became a sneakerhead um, <laughs> as a result of that deprivation oh, wow. of not, yeah. not having enough. That became his addiction. Yeah. But two decades later, he started this nonprofit when he remembered how it felt to be the receiver of mm-hmm. kindness. So the impact we have on others just by being kind to Mm -hmm, one another mm -hmm. can ripple out. We've gone back several times to the shelter that we were at Mm. and given everybody's shoes there. Oh, wow. Is that cool? I mean, like, it's like, oh, my God, it's so satisfying for me to go back there and give out shoes. And I mean, we've given out 16,000 now in five years. Wow. Nike's support. It's its a really beautiful thing. So here, what you were saying, we could have been just a sad statistic yep. of somebody in a shelter, an addict, but I can rewrite my story yes, figuratively and literally. It's like I can rewrite the narrative. Mm-hmm. So are you a healer? Yes. Hmm. I love that when people can just drop into it and say yes. Yeah. Yeah. I find so many people that I interview push it away for fear of what other people think of that word or the responsibilities that come with that word. But just like you said, the opportunity to share kindness with someone, that's healing. Yeah. And so everybody can be a healer because if you're able to touch someone's life in a positive way, that's healing, period. That's it. (laughs) Yes. It's not a science. I mean, people were kind to me. I was trying so hard to be a badass. (laughs) Yeah. But really behind that smoke and mirrors was a scared little girl. But I kept up this persona to protect myself Mm -hmm. from being hurt. But as defended as I was in my life, I had no defense against kindness. Mm -hmm. Kindness floors me. It touches me. And people were so kind to me when I was sober, including that woman that bought my son two pairs of shoes Mm. when I didn't have the money to buy it. How do I protect myself against kindness? There's no defense. You know, you could have been mad about it. You know, the ego could have come in and, and said, no, what are you trying to do? I see people who do defend against kindness. So the fact that you were able to soften your heart to allow that kindness in, that is extraordinary. Well, it was a time when I was so leveled by my life circumstances. I was ready. And you're right. You do have a choice because people harden up and say, I'm not Mm going to accept charity. Mm -hmm. And I see it all the time. One of the things that I try to work with clients on is is self-compassion because I've recognized how empathy as the antidote to shame is great, except for those of us who have chronic shame where we just constantly feel not good enough. And if I'm telling myself I'm not good enough, but you're telling me I am, I'm not going to let it penetrate. But I have so many clients who either unconsciously or consciously defensively push that compassion away. One of the books that I've read that I think you would love, it's called Addiction as an Attachment Disorder. 
Mm -hmm. And he talks about the drugs and alcohol essentially taking place of the love that they never had as a child or, or whatever. And so not knowing how to process unconditional positive regard, as we say in the field. And I have so many clients who they can tolerate it just enough. But when I try to get into that, like really deeper soul level with it, and it's subtle resistance, which is so interesting to me. Absolutely. Well, when I first got sober, uh, it became apparent that there I could not regulate my emotions mm. without any stability in growing up. Yep. I was using drugs and alcohol as a means to self-medicate. Yep. But trauma wasn't spoken about so much when I was growing up. Right. And it was not addressed. So the people that had PTSD were soldiers coming back from the war, right. not little right. kids. So I dulled the memory of that trauma mm -hmm. with all, any substance, with food, with fantasy. And I had to find a way to self-regulate and self-soothe and allow the kindness in. Yeah. But again, it was like the universe in all its wisdom. And I believe the universe is self-correcting, just like the mm -hmm. body mm -hmm. self-corrects, mm -hmm. that it provided circumstances for me to heal. Mm -hmm. So there were so many acts of kindness that I experienced. And what happened for me is my belief system went from it's a doggy dog world to people are out to get me to mm. I see kindness operating in the human heart mm. within these people that I have been they were circled the wagons. I mean, I it was amazing. It was an incredible experience that transformed me. Well, I can like already feel the light that you have. You energetically feel like a client that I have who I always say he's sunshine in human form. <laughs> There's just some energy of people who I'm sure that the alcohol and drugs numbed that light in some ways or dulled that light, but it was always in there. And I bet that other people could always see that. And I guess maybe I hear you almost not giving yourself enough credit for the things that are special and unique about you. And I guess I just want to shine a light on that because I think this story and everything that you're saying is so beautiful and so inspiring that I want you to take credit for it, you know? Here's what I believe. I believe that when I tapped into something deeper beyond finite self, mm -hmm. and when I tapped into something deeper and surrendered, that I surrendered my gifts any known or unknown mm -hmm. gifts I may have had, mm -hmm. I surrendered and I became a co-creator yeah. with this power and this presence. So I just don't think I am the one doing it all. Right. There is a presence within me or a spirit that comes through me mm -hmm. that is when I am the most helpful in it. Like, well, it's mm -hmm. like holding space for the client. Right. And I love that because when I'm doing counseling, it's like when I feel like I'm tapping into something, mm -hmm. it's when I'm not saying anything and I'm just right. holding space for them to feel their pain, that I have a container, mm -hmm. a large container. Mm -hmm. Darkness scares a lot of people. Yeah. It doesn't scare me as much because mm. I've been there. Yeah. That's what I say, too, because I, I haven't had the experience of a substance use disorder. But I know darkness. I know it real well. 
and it doesn't scare me either. And I think that's why I can vibe on the same level as my clients, because I know what that darkness feels like. Right. I think what you hear in my not wanting to own all of this, because mm-hmm. I'm very cautious of my ego coming in yes, yes. and taking over. Mm-hmm. So I want to always just realize that I'm doing this with something, a higher self. It's Mm co-creating. Believe me, when I was writing my book, there was parts of me that was going, you can't do this. (laughs) I would hit resistance. I'd Mm -hmm. go, oh my God, this is too much. People are going to know. And it was like, I would just pray to the universe. Mm -hmm. I can't write this, write it through me. I can't do this, do it through me. And it was, it was calling on something infinite that gave the power and the presence to move through my resistance. Yes, I'm taking this all in in a very personal way because I have I have a lot of conversations with my therapist about like putting people on a pedestal and being put on a pedestal and how do you ride the line of letting people give you their thanks and their appreciation and owning the fact that you have gifts and you are talented and XYZ and at the same time not letting the ego come in and I hear you do it really beautifully. And so it's interesting. I'm noting that it's my discomfort with you not owning it the way I think you should own it, (laughs) which is making me want to put it on you, which then is me putting you on a pedestal in some way. And you beautifully were like, no, thank you. I'm not going to step up there. That's (laughs) it's it's beautiful. And I'm going to listen back to this and know that this was a gift that you gave to me. Oh, thank you. I just feel so much grace and gratitude Mm. that has happened in my life that sure, I love, you know, when people are like writing and saying, I loved your book, it really touched me. You know, I've had a couple of executive producers contact me about Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. So I feel it's a compelling story. It's a rich, layered, compelling story. And it's honest. It's honest. And it's raw, gritty, Mm -hmm. and all of that. So yes, all of that came through me, but I had help all the time. So for me, it's staying right size. When I had a big position, making more money than I had ever made in my life, and I felt like I had arrived, my ego started to get in there and take Mm -hmm. credit for everything. So that's probably where that comes from. I was so unhappy with that job. Inevitably, I became so unhappy Mm. with the money, with the prestige Mm. that the job started making me sick. Mm -hmm. I've I've been there. Well, how do you feel about the term wounded healer? Well, I mean, I totally identify with that. (laughs) I mean, I totally Mm -hmm. identify with being a wounded healer. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I've shared some of my wounds with you. And Mm -hmm. like I said at the beginning, It's those very wounds that reach other people's wounds, you know. Mm -hmm. You can see, like, one of the gifts that came from me living and growing up in that environment is that when I'm doing a group, I have a good read or a good intuition on the room. And that's from your childhood trauma, for sure. For sure. Mm -hmm. And what would have been kind of a handicap for me living in a hypervigilant kind of state, it's become a tool for me Mm -hmm. to help others. So it's just like you knowing and experiencing darkness is able to help your clients. Mm -hmm. My experience as a child and everything I went through, again, 
saying, repeating this, that becomes a tool to help others. It's like, I have gifts that not everybody has. When you grow up with comfort and no adversity, you're not always challenged in the way I was or Mm -hmm. you were to survive. Absolutely. And I've come to recognize, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. I'm in the kitchen, like cooking up some theories here. And so since you meditate, I'm guessing you're fairly familiar with Buddhist principles, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody experiences suffering and we try to numb or we try to seek pleasure, right? To distance ourselves from that suffering. So I feel like always it narrows down to why people end up becoming addicted is those same two things, right? So either... I know I'm experiencing this pain and I'm trying to escape it by numbing, using drugs and alcohol, or I am just doing it for fun. I just want to have fun. And I find more often than not, the people who fall into that camp who just want to use to have fun, they often tell me that they had really normal childhoods. They can't readily point to trauma. They don't have stories like yours, right? So they can go into a treatment center and say, I'm not like any of these people because I didn't do any of this. And Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that archetype, that type of person, because they didn't have obvious trauma, didn't learn to recognize their inner life, didn't really learn the tools of knowing how to tolerate any sort of discomfort. And so I find those folks it's more difficult for them to get in touch with their act because everyone who's addicted has had trauma. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. Most of us as humans have had trauma unless we really had beautiful parents, which (laughs) I had a psychic tell me once only 3% of families were healthy. And I was like, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So I find that those folks seem to struggle in recovery because of this huge disconnect between what's actually causing the addiction and the manifestation of it. So, yeah, I think that people like that I used to have as clients were often very privileged at this treatment center I was working at. And the parents pressured them there, Mm -hmm. usually with an ultimatum that I'm cutting you off if you don't go through treatment. So they didn't want to be there. And they might have been there for like the 17th, 18th, 20th time. Mm -hmm. And they were just going to not be cut off to stay. Well, I guess what they refer to, I'm not sure if I like the term, but failure to launch Mm -hmm. kind of syndrome. Right. So it was still working for them, the alcohol and drugs in some ways. They were still having fun. They were still going to parties. So why should they stop other than their parents' purse strings? They want to stay connected to that. I think that you don't have to circle the drain in order to get sober. I've heard this quote before that intelligence is learning from our mistakes and brilliance is learning from other people's (laughs) mistakes. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're going down the elevator, you can get off on any floor. Yep. I don't know what's the motivating factor has to be for anybody, but it's about holding space as a healer. Mm -hmm. It's about holding space and letting them have their journey. It's like, I can't change their trajectory. But Wendy, I want to, I want to save them. 
I know. I know. <laughs> Which is ego. And I know that. I know right. that. It's just, I feel like there's a way to hack into something. And I'm trying to like figure it out because I, I have a client who I've known for seven years and I've always seen this internal struggle and they just came to recognize it. And I'm like, how can I shorten that window of time of recognition if it's possible? And maybe it's not. Right. Well, I want to give you some space to share with listeners where they can find you, where they can buy your book and anything else you want to make sure to share before we wrap up. Well, I have a website. It's wendyadamson.com and motherload. It's spelled L-O-A-D. Also by Wendy Adamson can be found on Amazon. And if you're curious to see what the nonprofit I'm involved in is doing, you can go to haveasoul.com. It's mm. H-A-V-A-S-O-L-E.com. And that's really about it. I just enjoyed talking to you. I could probably oh talk gosh, to you yes. for hours. We're friends now. Yay. Yay. Yeah. I want to do anything I can to help you and help your voice be heard because it is a beautiful voice and a beautiful message. Thank you. Yeah. And I don't have a publicist. It's all word of mouth. Mm -hmm. So one last thing that yeah. really was satisfying as well is somebody donated 50 books and I was able to oh, get wow. them to women in behind bars incarcerated in jail. Oh, I love that. So that was very satisfying. That's amazing. Well, so if you're listening today and you were vibing on what Wendy was saying, I really hope that you go follow her on Instagram, you buy her book and you share her message because it's super cool and, and more people need to hear this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Wendy. How was that? What did you think? Isn't she sunshine in human form? I just love Wendy. I'm clapping, clap, hand emojis. So thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Wendy or about Conversations with a Wounded Healer, you can find more info on our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And thanks as always to my lovely editors at the Creative Imposter Studios. Thank you to Liam O'Donnell for the album art and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Thanks so much for stopping in. Until next time. Bye-bye.